His Rolling Stone article about the unraveling of America stirred up a hornet's nest about how the rest of the world has been viewing the United States. One of the incredible things about the States is that it's been always the best of all things, the worst of all things. That's why everybody loves it, you know, everybody wants to go there. Coming up, Canadian anthropologist Wade Davis tells us why he thinks some of his American neighbors might need a wake-up call. In Spain, political debate turned into civil war in the 1930s. Guides from Spain tell us about the places you can visit to learn what their history can teach us today. It was not north against south. It was people with things against people without things. And a nature photographer shares tips for capturing the impressive scenery you'll find in Scotland. You get these incredible shades of light that come from the heavens as if it's just pinpointing little things for you to look at. We call them the silver jewels of the earth. Come along for the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. A Scottish photographer offers pointers for where you should aim your camera to bring back a souvenir of the wild majesty of Scotland. And friends from Spain share how a civil war in their country three generations ago still affects the way many of their countrymen view one another. That's coming up in the hour ahead on today's Travel with Rick Steves. We're all glad to have survived 2020. The change in the U.S. administration suggests it may be time for a different tone in how Americans work on the issues our country needs to tackle. But are we up for it? An essay on the unraveling of America that anthropologist Wade Davis wrote for Rolling Stone last August got people talking. He joins us now from his home near Vancouver, B.C. to explore America's changing role in global politics. His essay is sort of like a letter to a neighbor who needs a little tough love. And that neighbor happens to be a Canadian anthropologist. Wade, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Rick. Good to be with you. So you wrote an article that apparently is the most widely read thing Rolling Stone has ever published? Well, it hit a real nerve. Five million people read it on the site. It trended number one for five weeks. Uh, 362 million social media impressions within two months. And my visitations to my Wikipedia site soared from a modest 150 a day to over 4,000. It just hit this nerve, Rick, and uh, none of us expected it. That nerve is like that uh, little quip that's going around on the internet suggesting that to live in Canada today is like owning an apartment above a meth lab. Um, yeah, that you know, was Robin Williams, actually. <laughs> Your essay is, you say it's a love letter, but it's a love letter called The Unraveling of Your Neighbor, America. How is it a love letter? Well, I think when you have someone you love uh, and you do a family intervention, the most important and the first thing you have to do is hold a mirror to them to show how far they've fallen, because that's the first step in the path of rehabilitation. And I think that things have happened so fast in America mm -hmm. that in a way people look in the mirror and they still see the myth of their own exceptionalism and they don't necessarily see how far things have changed. Right. And I think COVID revealed that. You know, it didn't cause the country to fall, but it revealed to what extent the country had fallen. And I think a lot of that's just about the nature of community. And I think where Canada's no perfect place, but it is interesting to compare the consequences of COVID in the two countries. Wait, it's, it's interesting because Americans, I think we take a, a little bit of offense when somebody from another country critiques us, but we're more likely to listen to Canadians. And it's so helpful for somebody to remind us that the global view of America has changed a little bit. I mean, people used to look at us differently than they do now. Well, as a great reporter for the Irish Times wrote, you know, there have been many emotions expressed about America since World War II, but one that has never been there is there now, and that was pity. 
And that was how the world saw America as frontline healthcare workers, you know, were waiting for the arrival of emergency supplies on airlifts from China. It was almost like the hinge of history opened the Asian century. Pity, that's something new. Another thought that I've had is, when I write, if I ever refer to America as, a, as an empire, people take offense to it. But we're an empire, I, uh, to me, and empires rise and empires fall. I'm a historian, and, and it's frustrating to me how unable or unwilling Americans are to realize history may be speaking to us. In your essay, you reminded us how empires come and empires go. Well, no kingdom expects to fall, and they all do. Uh, you know, historically, if you think in European tradition, the 15th century belonged to the Portuguese, the 16th to the Spanish, the 17th to the Dutch, the 18th to the French, and the, and the 19th to the British. And the British Empire actually reached its greatest geographical extent in 1935. But we know, of course, that by the end of World War II, the empire was bankrupt and bled white, and the torch had, in fact, passed to America. Hmm. Well, clearly, yeah. I mean, if you look at the numbers after World War II, we were so dominant and comfortable thinking we're the last great superpower. But of course, as you said, look at what the past has taught us. And I think pretty clearly right now, there's a changing of the, the torch ever further westward, and, it, and China is emerging as the, the next great superpower. I mean, I don't necessarily look forward to that moment with any kind of um, delight. And I think if, if and when we no. find out that this is right. the uh, fading of the American era, I think we'll be very nostalgic for the best years of that era. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with Wade Davis. And he teaches anthropology at the University of British Columbia. For 13 years, he was explorer in residence at the National Geographic Society in Washington, D.C. He's written lots of books. His latest is Magdalena, A River of Dreams. Right now, we're talking about an article he wrote for Rolling Stone called The Unraveling of America. So when you take a look at it as a Canadian, what's the state of the working class in Canada compared to the United States? Uh, you wrote a, a powerful reference to a, a clerk at the grocery store. Well, this is, this is a wonderful kind of allegory, I think. You know, if you get your groceries in the States these days, there's kind of generally a, a social, economic, racial, educational chasm between you and the checkout person that's difficult to bridge. And you don't feel that in Canada. And the reason is very simple. In Canada, you know that the clerk is getting a decent wage because of the unions. And secondly, you know that probably your kids go to the same local public school as they do. And those schools are funded not by property taxes, which favor the children of the affluent, but by block grants from the state that support all kids equitably. And third and most important, you know that they know that if their kids get sick, they get exactly the same medical care as your kids and the prime minister's kids. And you see, what Americans don't understand is that healthcare has got nothing to do with health. It's got nothing to do with medicine. Healthcare is all about social solidarity and fairness. Do I belong? Am I important? Will I be treated well? And let me tell you, if I can, a wonderful story that illustrates this so beautifully. Uh, my mother was 85, living alone in an apartment in Victoria, she got a headache at 11 o'clock, and by 2 o'clock, she was being prepped for neurosurgery. Her life was saved by an immigrant Indo-Canadian wonderful doctor. We went to the intensive care unit, and there was a little girl in the adjacent bed, surrounded by her Mennonite family from Manitoba, who by chance had the same affliction, whose life had been saved that day by the same doctor. My sister was thinking, you know, we could pay for this service, but in many jurisdictions, that family would be faced with a choice between 
the health of the child and the economic well-being of the family. And in Canada and the social democracies, we say that's not a choice that any citizen should have to make in a civilized country. Now, in Victoria, the Empress Hotel has a rule that any family member or any Canadian with a family member in the ICU gets a free room. So we all poured back to the Empress in the old Bengal lounge, and I bought drinks for everybody, and the Mennonites don't drink, so I got them tea or whatever, and then we did a toast. And we didn't toast our loved ones who had survived the day, much as they were in our hearts. We didn't even toast this wonderful neurosurgeon that had saved their lives. We toasted our country because it was our country that had brought these two families together, families from absolutely the opposite poles and spectrum of the Canadian experience, educationally, religiously, geographically, economically. But in that moment, we were one in a moment of grace, living together as Canadians in, in a country that cared for all of us equitably in our moment of need. That, to the Canadian, is the definition of patriotism, not flag-wrapped chauvinistic cant. Now, some people would be listening to us right now, and they would say, well, pie in the sky, I'm concerned about my rights, my fundamental rights. A Canadian would have a different approach to protecting their rights, I think, with a more of a social um, perspective. Well, you know, you, your motto is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Ours is peace, order, and good government. You've never really had a life, life, liberty, and happiness in the States. The American people consume two-thirds of the world's antipsychotic, antidepressant drugs. We, we may have a kind of boring slogan, peace, order, and good government, but at, least, <laughs> but at least we have it, and it works for us. Part of your rights are access to public education, uh, social safety net for the weak and the elderly and the infirmed. Uh, and That's social democracy. I mean, uh, American rights are the, are the personal liberty and the right to own a personal arsenal of weaponry. On D-Day uh, 1944, 4,414 Allied soldiers were killed. But in 2019, by April of that year, in that one year alone, that many Americans had died in violence amongst themselves with guns. Um, yeah. So we believe in press freedom, and so do you, but America ranks 45th in the world in terms of press freedom. So this is not to be negative, but you, you have to see the world as it is. Wade Davis is joining us from his home just outside Vancouver, Canada, where he's a professor of anthropology. He's written some 20 books to date. His latest explores the river that defines the nation of Colombia. It's called Magdalena. River of Dreams. He'll discuss that with us on a later edition of Travel with Rick Steves. His essay on The Unraveling of America set a record at Rolling Stone magazine for page views and reader comments. His website is daviswade.com. This last year has just been tough. I mean, north of the border and south of the border. Right now we've got vaccines on the horizon. We've got a new administration. Looking ahead, do you have any reason to be optimistic? You know, Rick, I'm always optimistic. I mean, pessimism is an indulgent, just like despair is an insult to the imagination, orthodoxy, the enemy of um, invention. Look, America's been through so much. I mean, one of the incredible things about the States is that it's been always the best of all things and the worst of all things. That's why everybody loves it. You know, everybody wants to go there. You know, my career would never have happened in a thousand years in Canada, you know, um, the sense of everything being possible, it's really magical. And there have been dark times. Think about, it's hard for us to remember uh, the McCarthy era, but it's amazing to think how this troll of a alcohol-sodden, uh, gnome-like senator from Wisconsin 
was able to put the fear of God into everybody. The slightest hint of affiliation with Communist Party or homosexuality could ruin your career, whether it was in the State Department or Hollywood or the universities or corporate America. And all it took was that precious moment when that almost forgotten senator on record in public said, have you no shame? Have you no shame? Have you no decency? A, a man who, who struck fear into the heart of Ike Eisenhower, the president, the man who had led the crusade in Europe, he was afraid of McCarthy, but then it suddenly crumbled overnight. And I think America's been able to do that, you know, time and again. And let's just all hope that the country can be the country of, of Walt Whitman and Abraham Lincoln and even the Grateful Dead once again. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Wade Davis, I am so thankful that we've got neighbors north of the border that can give us a little tough love, a little caring, like you've just given me. I'm, I'm just feeling more positive about the challenges ahead. Thank you so much, and best wishes with your work. Thanks very much, Rick. Up next, we learn from Spain's bloody civil war of the 1930s. Later in the hour, we'll get inspired by the gothic stained-glass majesty of Saint-Chapelle in Paris, plus photography tips for capturing the wild beauty of Scotland. It's Travel with Rick Steves. In 1939, the nearly three-year-long Spanish Civil War finally came to an end. To the world, it represented the struggle between tyranny and democracy, fascism and socialism, or perhaps fascism and freedom. It still has important lessons to tell us today. Our guides from Spain, whose families lived and died through this tragic period, have joined us in our studio to share where you can encounter the sights and the reminders of this critical period in Spanish history. We're joined by Federico Garcia Barroso from Madrid and Francisco Glaria from the Basque Country. Francisco and Federico, thanks for being here. Hello. Hi to everybody. Thank you. So this happened in the 1930s. And if I think back in the United States, you know, we had the World War II experience in the 1940s, and many of our families have uh, experienced that way. I would hazard to say the Spanish Civil War impacted Spain even more than, than our war experience has impacted us since we had our civil war. Yeah. Federico, in your family, uh, what was the civil war impact on your family? Well, deeply, because we, in my family, I can tell you how we see both, both colors. Actually, people related to my father, my father's family, were they belonged to the blue wing, the right wing, you see, and the family of my mother were actually on the opposite side, the, the left we in the democratic people, you see. So we actually, um, we, we, we suffered in the family, yeah. And this was a war that was famous for brothers against brothers. That is essentially In the United the, States, the it was north against south, but in mm -hmm. Spain, it was not that simple. Francisco, what was the Spanish Civil War like for people who are Basque people, people who live in the north part of Spain and Basque country? Well, you have to understand that uh, Spanish Civil War was, it was not north against south, it was people with things against people without things. And in the Basque country, the tradition is that the elderly sibling inherits everything. The rest of the siblings inherit nothing. So in the same family, you're going to have 
some brothers and sisters fighting against the other one. I didn't realize that. It really was the haves against the have-nots politically mm -hmm. and uh, in, in war. Yeah, it was horrible. And in Europe, historically, the oldest child inherits everything, so within your family, you would have reason to fight. Yeah. So let's just get this straight. In Spain, you have the Civil War. You've got the left, you've got the Republicans, you've got the, the Soviet Union, you've got... Uh, Hemingway, you've got nationalists, you've got Franco, you've got Hitler helping out. Uh, Francisco, well, can, can you kind of give us, what are the basic, who's the teams? What's going so on here? For Americans, one of the most difficult things is to understand that uh, the Republicans in the United States is the conservative party. Right. In Spain, the Republicans are the liberal party. Okay. So the liberals would be the generally the poor people. Yes, the poor okay. people, the left wing. The left, Okay. okay. And they're related with the red color. And they would be supported by the Soviet Union. Yes. Mm -hmm. ah, okay. And on the other hand, we have the nationalist, which is Franco, which is Hitler. Okay. And they're related with blue color. So the rich people, the nationalists, they would be the right wing and they would have been uh, the favorite side of Hitler. Yes. You have to think that it is the priest, it was the militars, and it was the wealthy people. The priests uh, for the privileged church, which yeah. allied itself with the military and the elites in the country? Franco was super Catholic. Oh, okay. So he helped a lot. I mean, during the war and during his yeah. dictatorship, if you didn't go to Mass on Sunday, you didn't make it to Monday. You didn't make it to Monday. As easy as that. So you've got socialism, you've got fascism, you've got the monarchy... Where would the monarchy fall? Is that it with the right, probably? Yeah, mostly. So the, the monarchists and Franco was uh, supported by the king? Actually, we, we can say that the, the right wing has been always associated to the monarchy and vice versa, you see. And that, that would be the elites in society, the, the people mm. that were in power. Mm. And then today, when we look at Spain, as travelers, we want to come and we, when we want to learn from that. Where do we go to learn about the civil war in Spain, Francisco? Me being Basque, you have to go to Guernica. Guernica, it's a small village that was bombarded in 1937. It was uh, totally destroyed. It was the first massive bombing. During the Second World War, these type of bombings took place continuously, but Guernica was the first place. So Guernica was the first testing of aerial bombardment. Hitler jumped at the opportunity to try out his, his uh, Luftwaffe. And you just said the word. It was trying. Let's learn how to destroy. Let's mm -hmm. see what happens. Yeah. And it created chaos and terror yes. in, in Guernica. Um, We'd never seen anything like that. 1937, inspiring Picasso to make that amazing mural, Guernica, which now we can see in Madrid. Mm -hmm. um, in Sofia. Federico, elsewhere, so we go to the town of Guernica, we can learn and be inspired there. We see the, the mural by Picasso in Madrid. Mm -hmm. uh, what else would we see in Spain that is a, a quote, a civil war site? We could go to Salamanca. Salamanca, we find the, the archives of the Spanish Civil War and uh, the Spanish writer and, and high-thinking man, uh, Unamuno, is a key person in, in the history of the Spanish War. You know, a man between both sides, you see, extremely critical with both sides. The archives in Salamanca are actually quite interesting. And also other places in central Spain and southern Spain. Why central and southern Spain? In central Spain, I'm thinking about Salamanca. I'm thinking also, uh, Francisco, about this little, little village called Belchite, which is in, in nearby Zaragoza, you see. It's a horrible and then, place. Yeah, you've been there, yeah? A horrible place, why? It is a place, it was a village that was yeah. totally destroyed and yeah. Franco didn't allow the reconstruction of the village. So if you go today... So he left it as a memorial to show his power? Yeah. Or? So you can walk through the village totally destroyed. It's a memorial. They have constructed yeah. the new Belchite. And what is the name of that? Belchite. 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 Which is actually B-E-L-C-H-I-T-E. Belchite. 
Okay. Tiny village located nearby Zaragoza. Mm-hmm. Near Zaragoza. Also, we've got the Valley of the Fallen, which is a giant mm. under the mountain tomb. It's the biggest church space that I think I've ever been in. And it was dug out by prisoners in the Civil War, wasn't it? Exactly. That is why socially and, and morally, it's still nowadays quite conflictive. You so see, it was almost slave labor by Franco to build this thing. Totally. I mean, he, he just said that there was a posthumous homage dedicated to all the victims of the Spanish Civil War, but that is not really true. I mean, Dedicated all to all the victims, but dug by the left. Exactly. And dedicated to himself. And, then who's, and whose tomb was right in the center under the cross. Exactly. Yeah. And t- <laughs> Franco, until just mm-hmm. this last mm-hmm. year or so, well, what was yeah. the issue in Spain to actually move Franco's tomb? Because... I remember going to the Valley of the Fallen and my friends would, would go there, Spanish friends, mm-hmm. either to remember Franco or to make sure he was still dead and spit on his tomb. Exactly. You know? Let's say that, yeah, the majority of Spaniards do not feel comfortable there, you see, obviously because he was there. Now he's not physically there anymore. And so now it can be an honest memorial to the victims of the Civil War as Spain grows beyond that. Absolutely. That without is a, honoring Franco. That is a purpose, exactly, yeah. I think this is the beginning of a new chapter. I really think so. We're looking at the sights and history lessons from the Spanish Civil War right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guides are Francisco Gloria from Pamplona and Federico Garcia Barroso from Madrid. Federico, when we're thinking of Civil War, I think Toledo and the Alcazar because that was such a dramatic sort of Alamo, a last last stand Mm -hmm. in the Civil War. What do we find in the Alcazar and is that worth checking out from a Civil War point of view? Yeah, the, the Alcazar in Toledo is actually an icon, iconic enclave for those uh, nationalists and those also people supporting Franco. They were just there resisting and resisting, you see, and uh, and the building was actually a historical building from, from hundreds of years ago, and it was destroyed, seriously destroyed during the Spanish Civil War. Right now is the Army Museum, okay? Mm-hmm. But you still find there some stories about those Franco supporters still resisting, you see, in, this, in the town, in the imperial town of Toledo. So it's the big fortress in the middle of Toledo. It's a military museum. And I think it is so interesting when you go a generation or two or three generations later, a society still has the complexity of how do we report on this historically because it was a civil war, 50-50. You got people, brothers killing brothers, uh, Francisco, when I look at Spaniards, I remember most of them are passed away now, but there was a whole generation of short people. I mean, the shortest people were the ones that had their growing years during the Civil War in the late 30s because they had very little to eat. That's a physical reminder of the Civil War. Today, what are the reminders of the Civil War in Spain? Personally, I was born with Franco. Okay, I was born in 1971 and he died in 75. I am one of those children that although I did not suffer Franco, my education was with Franco heritage. So you're going to find first, my generation were baby boomers, right? In the United States, baby boomers are much earlier. Things that in my generation, uh, there are things that we still do that to me, it shocks me because I always say it's, I hate it because it's a Franco thing. For example, I do not wear shorts because Franco did not allow you to wear shorts. Men wore shorts until the first communion. It's in my and you, mind. And you and still have this uh, this baggage of Franco. Yep. During your grandparents' time, men did not wear shorts. And today, even though you wouldn't support Franco, no, no, no. You, you have that baggage. <laughs> yeah, it is part of my DNA. And Federico, yeah, what would. is a similar thing that, that you can see today in the psyche of the Spanish people that is a reminder that in the 1930s you had a horrible civil war? Well, new generations right now are actually, (laughs) they don't really, really remember the new generations. But we do, because we were children, you see. But socially, you know, this is a process that takes time. You had a pact of forgetting, literally, the Il Pacto del Olvido, Mm -hmm. 1977. Two years after Franco died, 
where you tried to make that transition into democracy? Was it literally a, an agreement in Spain that we will now we'll try to get along? I think it was the, the only way out. Basically, you see, it's... Um, so I mean, no right or wrong, let's just start again. Exactly, exactly. That, huh. that was actually the point. And that happened in, the, in that moment of political, social, and economical transition in Spain in the in the late 70s, yeah. But one of the things that right now is a hot topic in Spain is especially with this Franco moving out of the Valley of the Fallen, do we take all of the Franco things away? And we mm -hmm. were talking before coming yeah. in, he believes that, yes, Franco has to go away. Personally, I don't want to get all the Franco things away of Spain because the new generation, as Federico has said, they don't remember, they don't know nothing. So we need, I, I need physical things to remind me of that horror. So we're erasing all the names of the streets, we're erasing all the images. So I need something tangible, something that I can see, I can touch. But that's my mm -hmm. personal opinion. Because in the time of Franco, so much was named because of the the war, named yeah. after Franco, named after, you know, nationalist causes and so on, because they won, right? Yeah, they won, and he changed everything. That's fascinating. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're learning about the Spanish Civil War. Our guests have been Federico Garcia Barroso and Francisco Gloria. You know, you guys, I got to think right now, given the, the political turmoil that's uh, throughout democracies in the West, as there's fear, as there's opportunistic politicians that want to capitalize on people's, uh, how they're threatened by immigrants, uh, how there's this rise of an angry uh, class of people that have felt downtrodden. Is there a dynamic in Spain that is similar to what's going on in Hungary and what's going on in Poland and what's going on in England and in mm. some ways in what's going on in our country? Do you see that in Spain? And does it, does it give you any sort of uh, deja vu to the Civil War days? Yeah, unfortunately, you see this uh, demagogic behavior is, is increasing in, in Spain and uh, and it's not actually a big problem, not yet. We see the evidence of that and it's, it's sad. I, I always, is it a flavor of fascism? Absolutely. It's a little bit scary, you see, because, I mean, fascism do not tolerate any other any other option, you see. That's kind and, of it fundamentally, isn't it? It's fascism. It's a monolithic, neo-patriotic, just everybody together in lockstep. Yeah, and that's easy, easy to to follow just by some people that just they didn't really see anything else than that. And this is really sad and a little bit scary. Francisco. Federico before talked about Unamuno. Unamuno is a great philosopher. And he said a sentence that is so vibrant for today. He said that fascism is cured by reading and racism is cured by traveling. That is so fundamentally true. It's so beautiful. To me, those words are so real today. And in so many ways... Reading is like travel. It opens you up to new things. Otherwise, you're saddled with the perspective that you were raised and you're inclined to think you're right and everybody else is wrong. You don't have empathy. Exactly. Travel, read, be open, live together. Federico yeah. Garcia Barroso, Francisco Gloria, thank you. We got to learn from history. And when we travel, we can. And with good guides, we can do it even better. Thank you so much. Gracias. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. You'll find links to our guests with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. In the heart of the busy modern city of Paris sits the tiny church of Saint-Chapelle, like a medieval pearl in an urban oyster. Here to talk with me about Saint-Chapelle is my friend and co-author, Jean Openshaw. Hey, Rick. Hey, Jean. What makes Saint-Chapelle so special to you? Two words. Stained glass. 
It's a cathedral of glass like none other. It completely immerses you in the medieval world. Here, picture it. You, you've been there. It starts right when you enter. You enter on the ground floor, just like a humble medieval pilgrim. Then you climb up a spiral staircase. It's very narrow. You wind up, up, up until, bam, there you are in the upper chapel, completely surrounded by walls of brilliant stained glass. You know, I've been there, and it's one of the great moments in European travel, really. It's, you come out of that dark, tight medieval spiral staircase, and the whole place glows. It's just flooded with light that's been flowing through these windows for 800 years. It's a medieval wow. Mm-hmm. And you stand right there in the middle and take it in. There's these 15 big window panes, and it shows, as I've heard, about a thousand different scenes. Hmm. You look close, you can see saints, you see angels. You see knights on horseback and kings on their thrones. It mixes it all together. It's the entire Christian history of the world, Hmm. from the creation to Christ to the end of time. Each individual scene, if you look close, is interesting, but if you back up, the whole effect is overwhelming. When you're standing there inside Saint-Chapelle, bathed in this colored light, it's like you get a tiny glimpse of the divine. That's our challenge, to go back 800 years and get that glimpse of the divine as pilgrims did when they visited centuries ago. It's amazing how people back in the 13th century could make such a beautiful church. And it came about in a unique way, didn't it? It's all about a very important relic. They were inspired by the the king had bought what he thought was the crown of thorns. That was that... The The crown crown. Jesus wore on the cross. Yes. And I understand they paid more for that crown than they paid for the actual beautiful building. (laughs) Yes. They didn't pay the peasants, so that's (laughs) how they could do it. Cheap labor. Cheap labor, right. And then what's remarkable is you've got this uh, Gothic-style construction. It's like they built a reliquary around the crown. So a reliquary is the little jewel box that would hold one of these sacred relics, which were such a big deal in the Middle Ages— It really is like the entire building is the jewel box for the crown of thorns. And it's not there today, but when you stand in the Saint-Chapelle, you see this ornate altar piece where the crown once was displayed. Which was the altar simply to display the crown of thorns. And surrounding it all was this beautiful stained glass. That was the medium of the day. That was the state of the art. And it couldn't be done without this ability to make a skeleton of support with the Gothic architecture pillars and arches that could free up the walls for the stained glass. So this stained glass really was the highlight in so many ways of what medieval people could do for visual arts. I mean, it just, it's, it's hard think, to appreciate the glory of it. Think of just how, what they knew how to do it. You know, glass is basically melted sand. Uh-huh. But then you melt it and then you, then you mix in the various uh, chemicals or the various metals. To, the whole to, palette of colors by these metals. Copper to make green, cobalt to make blue... And then you'd piece all of these little pieces together to create these beautiful scenes. And, Gene, this is, it's one of the most impactful spaces anywhere in European travel. And a great thing about Saint-Chapelle is you go there for a concert as the sun's going down. They've got string quartets playing. Music completes that multimedia experience. You got the music, got your Gothic arches, your stained glass. The place glowing like a lantern, it's a total immersion in the medieval setting. One of the highlights, clearly, of Paris and in all of Europe, if you like medieval art, that's for sure. Jean, for 800 years, the tiny chapel of Saint-Chapelle, there right on the island where Paris was born in the middle of the Seine River, has wowed kings and peasants. And even tourists. It gives us a glimpse into the medieval mind and a glimpse of heaven. It reminds us how those people saw light itself as almost divine. 
In fact, what are the very first words of the Bible? Let, Let there be light. Gene, it's been fun riffing on culture with you. You know, it's always a good reminder that a little art and history can add a whole new dimension to your travels. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Next on Travel with Rick Steves, a professional nature photographer from the Hebrides shares pointers for shooting the perfect souvenir photo of Scotland. We're at 877-333-RICK. And by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. Hey, I'm Rick Steves, and I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. It's all in Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, Art for the Traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com. When he's not leading tours of his Scottish homeland, you can often find James McCletchy with a camera in his hands. Scotland has a special beauty and a special light, and as a photographer... He knows how to catch it. James, or Seamus in Scottish, joins us in the studio now with his tips for capturing the ambiance, the culture, and the landscapes of Scotland in photographs. James, thanks for being here. Hi, Rick. Love to be here. Boy, you live in one of the most beautiful corners of the world, the islands off of the west coast of Scotland, the Hebrides. And when I think about it, and when I look at your photographs, it must be just perfect if you love photography. Describe your homeland and how that relates to your photography. My homeland's an incredible environment of changing light, changing color. Uh, you're absorbed into nature every time you go out. And the greatest thing about being there is the challenges of trying to capture something that most people don't see, whether it's in the rain, whether it's the huge ocean waves. Recently, I had waves there that were over 18 meters high after a storm. I was the only one on the beach. But sometimes you have to take that risk and that challenge to yourself to go out and do it. But then another days after storms have gone by, you get these incredible shades of light that come from the heavens as if it's just pinpointing little things for you to look at. We call them the silver jewels uh, of the earth. And you see these shades coming from the clouds and they illuminate little bits of the landscape. And trying to capture that mood with a camera is really quite challenging. Um, and for me, it's really a battle between the alter ego of, of nature that I try to capture. There's this constant challenge with nature banging on the shore in the winter, the colors are a lot more muted. And how do you transform that color from the darkness of the winter into something kind of special? So I try and, and create images that are really surreal, that sometimes you will look at that image and you think, my God, there's no way that could ever have been. But it depends on the camera settings. It depends on everything else. And every time I go out, I learn something new about the camera and about how to process so it sounds like you need to be both a poet and a technician. You have to have the gear and know how to use it. It's very difficult. At times I started off with very small cameras and I always tried to maximize the opportunity where I could take a picture. But as I gradually learned the processes, I realized that I had to get more expensive equipment. I had to go and do different things. But it is quite technical, um, but it's also very abstract as well. And one of the greatest things to me is how do you frame a shot and give a composition? You've got to draw somebody into that shot. You've got to make them wander with you on the journey right through the picture. And that, for me, is fascinating. Sometimes you do it without thinking. Right. And then other times it is a thought process. It is, it is a deliberate process that is there. What are some dimensions of Scotland that you want to capture in your photography for other people to appreciate? When I look at Scotland, we reinvented our own history uh, after Culloden. Uh, and the images of Scotland were this romantic image, this misty image, the glens, the beautiful darkness, the beautiful moods, the ambience and the tranquility that is always there. 
And all around Scotland, we have that in abundance. Scotland, if you're in a city like Edinburgh or Glasgow, you could be there for weeks, for months, just photographing that. And the challenge for most photographers is all we ever see is sunny pictures of places, but the moods of the rain, when the lights come on in the streets, when you look at the top from Calton Hill down onto Princess Street, and you just catch the last glint of the sun mm-hmm. over Edinburgh Castle. Mm. If you're there in that moment capturing it and everybody else is walking around you they're not seeing it they're moving from it you there are absolutely absorbing it and also one of the things as well in cities is going down closes and things like that you can remove the people by a process within the camera in the same shot so you can actually get the clear streets so the camera is this amazing magical tool that creates this incredible surreal uh, environment for you The camera is almost a blessing because it helps sharpen your eyes to see things that the typical tourist can't see. Yeah, and also light. I love northern lights. I'm one of those people who chase the northern lights. Now, the northern lights come in different times of the year. What what light are you looking for? Because we have the, the magic hour, we call it. We have the magic hour. We have the blue hour, as we call it. And the problem with most people when they do photography, we do, they do it in midday time when the sun's at its highest. Yeah. The light is totally glaring. Yeah. Most photographers will go out early morning. They'll go late afternoon. You'll stay till dusk. You'll try and capture the sun. Yeah. But one of the interesting things that I found this year was about darkness. And I was out to the guide, and they taught me to do light painting with the camera. And I asked them to tell me what darkness was. And they said, there's no such dark thing as darkness, only darkness in the human soul. And when I came home from that trip, I started to go out into my own darkness and trying to bring in beautiful light and break and split the dark. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with James or Seamus McClutchy. And James is a photographer, and he happens to be stationed in a place that would be just a delightful place for a photographer to live, Scotland. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Preston's calling in from Austin in Texas. Do you have an experience with photography in Scotland? Yeah, well, I, I don't, but I actually am looking for some tips. Um, I, I really enjoy uh, architectural and uh, landscape and wildlife photography. And one of the things on my bucket list is to visit the Isle of Skye. Uh, my, my family's lineage can be traced back to there, and so I've always wanted to go and visit. In addition to that, I want to go and see the puffin migration. So I didn't know, I uh, wanted to get your tips on maybe the best times to visit to maybe see the best of uh, what Scotland has to offer um, in, in nature, um, but also in, anything you might be able to offer uh, in terms of seeing the puffins and, and how to make that a success as a photographer. All right. Thanks, Preston. Uh, so, James, sure. uh, first of all, the Isle of Skye, great place for a photographer. Oh, my God. Skye is a journey into this amazing landscape. It's almost, it's, it draws you in every angle. And the first thing with Sky, you come to the Sky Bridge, you look at the Sky Bridge, that connection from the mainland to the island. And it's as if you're going on this magical journey there, there's the mountains behind it. You then head into Sky. A lot of people talk about the fairy, the fairy pools. Uh-huh. Uh, you can go down to Glen Brittle, you take a walk out this pathway and suddenly these pools begin to appear. And the higher up you go, the more beautiful and absorbent the colours become in those pools. There's waterfalls there depending on the time of year. You head out. Uh, and by the way, that's a short walk from the car park. It's a right? very short walk, So yeah. this is important. you got to walk, but you don't need to walk miles. Sometimes you just walk 5 or 10 or 15 minutes and you get to these amazing places where you're in tranquility and you're away from the road. And the, the other thing about Sky as well, as you're coming through Sky, there is so much to absorb. Uh, in the summertime, if you go up there in June, July, you've got 18 hours of daylight. So as a photographer, you've got this magical 
time to play around with. You've got, uh, you go out into Slikachan, there's these amazing backdrops. And one of the things that I've found is really important to try and do is things like long exposure where you're talking to, if there's a movement in the wind, you're getting the clouds coming over there, they're sort right. of uh, line themselves up. Everything is really beautiful. Heading out onto the west coast of Skye, you're looking out towards Rum. And the best place that I've ever found for photography... Looking photog- out towards Rum, that's an island. It's an island just nearby, off the yeah. coast. And there's a little uh, road that you go down to Yalgal. Mm-hmm. And there's a boat there called the Bella Jane. And they'll take you to what I call the place where angels rest before they go to heaven in a place called Karushk. And you climb a little ladder there and you come into this beautiful backdrop of the Kulin Hills of Sky. Oh. And there's this amazing, magical uh, loch down below it. And when you set the camera up there, and you can put yourself in the pose, because Turner went here at one time and painted a painting. The great English painter the, Turner, the romantic yeah. painter. This, to me, was the greatest journey I ever did. I spent 20 years trying to go to Karushk, and when I went there, I totally felt I'd come to heaven. Now, you were talking about puffins. Puffins start to arrive off the west coast of Scotland around about the 10th of May. Mm-hmm. Um, so any time from May right the way through to the second week in August today. But I would go... Uh, May, June, July. The best islands to go for puffins is St Kilda. You can go up to Orkney as well. But if St Kilda is a top destination to go if you want to see uh, all the seabirds, gannets, bonksies, everything like that. There's one million seabird there. St Kilda, that's way far away. Isn't 41 it? miles into the Atlantic. You have Out to in th- the Atlantic. You go through the Hebrides. But Orkney itself oh. is incredible. Orkney's uh, great. Yeah. Staffa. Staffa is incredible as well. So if you go on, all the tourists go to Iona, and then you extend on to the next island, which is uninhabited, Staffa, and I was blown away by the bird life there, including the puffins. And the puffins will sit almost next to you. You can yeah. almost pat them. Huh. Uh, and you can use a small camera. Uh, this is a great thing about Scotland. You don't necessarily have to have the big equipment, but if you're on a journey, I would give myself two weeks to just start going to sky and into that. You need time when you're a photographer. Yeah, you can't just run it. It's just not click, click, click. You because I when I look at your photography, I think this is a man that's got photography as his priority, and that's chasing the light. Preston, thanks for your call. Thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with James McClutchy about his photography in Scotland, and his website is jamesmcclutchyphotography.com, and it's spelled M-A-C-L-E-T-C-H-I-E, jamesmcclutchyphotography.com. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Walter's on the line from Epping in New Hampshire. Walter, thanks for calling. Well, thank you for taking my call, Rick. I, what are your yeah. thoughts about photography in Scotland? Well, uh, we had the um, lucky chance to go up to Scotland, and uh, my uh, grandmother is a, was a Scot, and uh, her folks were from around the uh, area of Glen Nevis. So when she passed away, we decided to, to go as a family over there to, to visit, and uh, spectacular country, absolutely beautiful. Uh, we had a chance to go to Edinburgh, all the way up to Inverness, and uh, over to the Isle of Skye, and it was just an incredible uh, family vacation. Mm. And uh, we want to go back, and my question for photography is that during a great portion of the time we were there, we ran into some really rainy weather so a lot of the pictures came out um, dark. Uh, everybody that saw the pictures wanted to know if it ever stopped raining in Scotland. And it, um, what can you do if you go on a vacation and you run into um, overcast and, and, and rainy conditions to, to take photos that stand out and, and, and give an idea of 
of, uh, well, basically how nice the place looks. All right, Walter, we'll leave that to James here. Well, that's, it depends, of course, what uh, you're using. A lot of the mobile phones today that you use, they have a Pro app on them, uh, and you can adjust the white balance on them, you can adjust the aperture. Uh, one of the things that uh, a lot of people fail to do when they take photographies, particularly in the rain, is how do you capture the raindrops? You have to put a faster shutter speed on there, you increase the ISO. But one of the things that a lot of people don't do is they don't put on the flash. If you put a flash and illuminate those raindrops coming down there, the whole scene itself starts to take a different mood. Huh. If you then look at when, if you, it depends on the time of day as well you go out. If you go out in the late afternoon and if the street lights are just coming on, you start to get these moody effects, this moody lighting that comes through there. And that really starts to bring out the thing. The biggest problem as well with uh, rain is the colours are very, very dull. So you do have to adjust it there. Remember that most people who are using uh, did the top digital SLRs were shooting in a format called RAW, which is almost like a negative. So you are able to actually adjust uh, when you develop that photograph. But in the rain as well, the most important thing to do is to take something to cover the lens itself, to cover the camera. Uh, and if you're going to do that type of photography, a tripod can sometimes be very useful as well. Uh, when you, you're doing you know, it. when the sun does come out with a heavy cloud cover, it gives this amazing, powerful color with a dark sky. Oh, yes, and in particular places like Glencoe. If yeah. you're in Glencoe just after a shower of rain, everything has got this sparkle in the grass, the mountains, the rivers are running, and sometimes you get this rainbow that just comes through your shot there that just oh. suddenly adds the color that you want there into it. Also, just wait. Sometimes in, in, in Scotland we say we've got seven seasons in one day. If you wait half an hour, uh, that picture will come through there. I've done the same thing as you with the, the smaller cameras and things like that. I've gone home and I thought, yeah, I've got a great shot. And then I look at it and it's dark. Pretty dark. Because yeah. we think that when we do our TV show, when it's cloudy, the, the colors don't pop. I like that word pop. And when the sun's out, things pop. But as getting back to that heavy cloud cover, sometimes you kind of go, ah, we've had a long day, put the cameras down, call it good. And then, because it's cloudy, but there's that little sliver of, of open light at the horizon and when the sun hits that the whole world just gets like this amazing ray of light that comes in on an angle with the lid on it from all the clouds yeah no it's it's beautiful and it just draws you into it and that's for me the beauty of photography photography is an art in itself but it's the art of celebrating nature oh walter thanks for your call well thank you and thanks for the tips you all bet. right thank you okay this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with James McCletchy about photography in Scotland. Our email's radio at ricksteves.com. And Amy in Royersford, Pennsylvania, emailed us, and she writes, My husband and I visited Scotland last year and took many good photographs, but I realized I only took a few pictures of the wonderful people we met along the way. I caught Scotland's beauty, the landscape, but not its heart. How would you suggest I photograph the people of Scotland? That's a very interesting question. Um... If you stay in the cities, you tend to have the hustle and bustle. Everybody's running around, racing with their lives there, so it's not so easy to capture that. I would start to move into the rural areas, heading mm -hmm. out into places like St. Andrews. As you're going along there, you start to see quite a lot of agricultural people in the fields. You start to look at the beautiful blooms in the summer when we've got the crops on top of the fields, the winds blowing, and you see the farmers in the, in the fields. You move further up into the highlands of Scotland, you start to see the sheep. You start to see the red deer. Uh, you can start to see that beautiful thing there. And then you get the people working with the dogs as well. Uh, a lot of it is chance. You could be going along the road, there might be a farmer on the road. They don't really mind if you get out and take a picture because that whole scene is something that's a part of your journey. I'm very fortunate where I live because we have a lot of uh, 
small scale farms that are out there. I go out and try and capture that industrial look with them trying to do their work in all types of weather. Um, so it's really about going into the remoter areas. Yeah. Uh, one of the other things you could probably do is, in particular in Glencoe like that, you can go out with one of the rangers there and they'll take you into the valleys and you might get some hill walkers walking and standing mm-hmm. on top of the hills. So you've got these incredible silhouettes that we have in Scotland with somebody looking out onto that landscape, which again is allows you to come back and show that picture. And it almost um, exaggerates the vastness of the landscape when you have a solitary figure silhouetted on it. Yeah, and the greatest thing about the solitary figure is it's the unknown. Yeah. When you take people into a photograph, the interaction between you and what you were originally trying to photograph, the nature, changes. It's a, it brings a totally different balance there. Uh-huh. So you then have to refocus that shot to show that connection from that person in that landscape. And this is where you start to get that incredible joy there. Edinburgh closes are a really fantastic way of catching people as well. Edinburgh? They're closest in, down the little... Uh, in With Edinburgh. the little alleys. Yeah, because there's the always street. one or two people just walking down there. One nice thing about that is they might not be in the glare of the sunshine. If you get somebody in the shade... It's more evenly lit. It's beautiful, those closes there, and not not a lot of people do it. Right. But if you just set up the tripod and you wait and somebody walks down and then they just get to the very end and you've got this beautiful silhouette with the beautiful stonework of Edinburgh all around there. When it's it's framed right, you get the depth, you get the stone... You get the light hitting the stairs. You get the silhouette of those people. It's and the other, the, the other important thing as well is never let weather deter you. Right. Because Scotland, we do have a lot of rain. Right. Look at the water. Look at the puddles. Look at where people are walking. Look for the yeah. shadows of those people coming across that puddle. And then you will have the double shot. You'll have the reflection in the water and you'll have the person as well going through it. And that again draws you into the picture. It creates this amazing ambience. Just break the norm. Too many shots are from eye level with the sun right on somebody and just, you know, it's kind of predictable and boring. I want to just finish with a couple of thoughts. Scotland and tranquility. Where do you find tranquility? Tranquility comes, first of all, from within. It's how you go out into that environment and how you then absorb that tranquility. Taking the camera out with me then allows me to manifest that tranquility into a hopefully a tranquil scene at the very end. You've got such a beautiful garden of nature that you live in and you've got such a rich culture. How do you connect the culture with the nature through your camera? The culture is is quite easy. Um, I try and uh, place the ancient culture we had as well. We've had a culture that goes right away back to 5000 BC more or less mm-hmm. and the past is always present wherever I go. And then if you take those monoliths and put them into the scene, black and white is a very good way of absorbing that uh, part of your culture in there, but also just going to events where people are uh, participating, capturing the mood. Sometimes we forget that people create a mood as well, the smiles, the laughter, the jolliness, the dancing. Scotland is an awesome playground for a photographer. James McClutchy, thanks. This is an inspiration. I want to go back to Scotland right now, but first I want to learn how to use my camera better. Thank you. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton and Kazmura Hall. Amara Kitnikone uploads the show to our website. Sheila Gerzoff handles affiliate relations. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You can find out more about our guests and read Rick's travel blog on our website at ricksteves.com. We'll look for you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. 
Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, you can savor Europe's most exciting experiences and sights through a hundred of my favorite travel stories. Imagine hanging from an alpine ridge, dancing at a Turkish circumcision party, and swinging with a bell ringer in a medieval church spire. You can order your copy of For the Love of Europe at ricksteves.com.